1999, the U.S. Mint, which is the organization that makes uh, your, our coins, decided to uh, do something they had never done before. So what they did was convene a group of 25 people. These 25 people uh, were a various group of people from all throughout their organization. There were those at the high levels of their organization all the way down to one custodian in this group. People were invited from across that company, uh, that organization. People were invited from across the entire company to apply to be part of this group of 25 And the purpose of the group of 25 was to look at how they do what they do and put it in a simple form so that others all throughout their massive organization could see it. And indeed, at the end of that time, that's what they came up with is this this, uh, simplified diagram of sorts, uh, metaphor, picture, whatever you may want to call it. They came up with it. And they put it in every single location, multiple places, all over the place. The result of that was a pretty fascinating uh, uh, outcome. Uh, Between 1999, when this began, and 2000, in the year 2000, they increased their production from 20 uh, billion coins in 1999 to 28 billion coins in 2000 without any increase in their staff, any increase in their um, outlay of money for production, and all of it they attribute to this one reality that people in the organization knew where they fit into each individual part or piece. And so it is this morning that we begin a four-part series from the book of Acts that looks inside of grace into what we believe is the way God has called us to make disciples as a church. And I want you over the next four weeks to ask yourself the question, where am I? Where are you in this making pathway or process. We're not sure the metaphor. If you've got some good ideas, we're working on that. But where are you? So before I jump into that, let me remind you of our mission. It is to exalt Christ, see him transform lives, and then we embrace our community, which is here and all the way, as you know, to Ecuador and Africa, where we have special work in which we're involved. That's our mission. Our values, you'll see out in the lobby, Jesus over everything. Heart change that leads to life change. Others before ourselves. Those are our values. But today we talk about, and for the next four weeks, our process. Here it is. You'll see it on the, uh, on the screen. Here at Grace... We discover God, so you see the words in all caps, discover God through worship and equip university. Those are our two big avenues of discovering God. Belong through starting point, membership, joining the church, life groups, serve at 5182. This is right here. All of the service needed to serve the body, serve one another, and go everywhere else. Everywhere includes Warsaw, where we send folks to 
uh, work in the aftermath of the hurricane. It's a roofing project uh, somewhere in the county. Uh, maybe Hope 2911, which is a great ministry that Gary leads. There are multiple uh, go places. And so today is discover, next week is belong, the next week is serve, and the next week is go. This is why in your bulletin today is Equip University for the fall schedule. Because this is an opportunity for you to grow in your understanding and knowledge of God is through Equip University. That's why it's included today. So let's look then biblically at how we discover God. And here we find it in uh, the early church. Peter has just preached the very first sermon. And upon hearing it, some things happen. And we, uh, uh, we find out that we discover God, number one, by hearing the word. Look at this. Now when they heard this. Peter has just preached a sermon. There are thousands of people listening uh, to his sermon. And uh, when uh, they heard this, what did they hear? Let me give you some lines from Peter's sermon, just in case you ever accuse me of preaching too hard. All right? Here we go. Here's the line. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, he's saying, don't deny that. Jesus did some pretty amazing things. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Wow. You crucified, he says, and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter looks at his people. This is the very first sermon in the church ever. And he calls them crucifiers and murderers. That's the very first sermon. Peter isn't trying to win friends and influence people, is he? No, he's truthfully preaching the word. The call of the preacher is not to make you feel better about yourself. It is also not the preacher's task to make you feel worse about yourself. It is the preacher's job to help you see the awfulness of sin and the greatness of the Savior. That is the task of preaching, to help you to see the awfulness of sin and the greatness of the Savior. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Preaching does not advance the preacher, preaching does not advance ideas. Preaching advances the truth of God about the Son of God who came to die for sinners. That's the goal of preaching. 
preaching is absolutely necessary to discovering God. You cannot forego this time of worship together and grow. You must uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Romans 10, 14 and 15, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Preaching was from day one in the church part of it. We discover God by hearing the word preached. For me, it was a Tuesday night. I, I've heard the word preached all my life. My dad uh, was a pastor. Uh, I grew up Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Revivals heard the word preached, but it was on a Tuesday night. That word pricked my heart. When I was pierced to the heart, cut to the heart, heard a preacher preach. I don't recall loads of what he said. I just realized by the end of that night, I was lost. I needed Christ. And that night, Christ saved me. That night, he gloriously reached down as a 15-year-old kid and picked me up out of the miry clay, as David says. He set my feet on a rock. He established my way. He put a new song in my heart, a song of praise to him. We discover God by hearing the word. Secondly, we discover God by receiving the word. It isn't enough to hear it. They were cut to the heart. If the word doesn't go to your heart, this is a futile exercise this morning. As a matter of fact, please hear me. If the word doesn't cut to your heart this morning, this is a dangerous exercise for you you say what do you mean what I mean is this if you come Sunday after Sunday and there is no penetration of your heart by the word of God if that is what happens to you then you will become numb to the word you will somehow think that your attendance equals some level of spirituality you will then inoculate yourself to the very word of God you'll drink on Saturday night and sing on Sunday night uh, Sunday morning you will party one time and praise the other you'll curse one time and, and exclaim the greatness of God the other and your life will become one of duality one of hypocrisy it is dangerous to hear the word without being cut to the heart it's dangerous you do not come to worship to learn you come to be changed that's so important how important is this to god we were in ecuador as you know and uh was an amazing uh, trip. It always is. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday of last week that I discovered that I was preaching on Sunday. So um, I saw the pastor of the church where we were going up north, and he said, you'll be bringing the word Sunday, won't you? I said, I guess I will. 
I prepared nothing. Nobody told me in advance when I'm stateside with all the stuff. But I've been camping out in Psalm 27 in my own time with the Lord. And I, I thought, Lord, will certainly bring something from that. And so it is a dynamic church that we are part of when we go there. Uh, and we're there in that church. And I'm preaching through an interpreter. Though I speak Spanish, to preach in Spanish is a difficult thing. Last year I did preach in Spanish, but I prepared well in advance. This time with no advance prep, I literally prepared the sermon on the four-hour bus ride from uh, Quito or Conocoto up to Ibarra. And so I'm uh, in, in preaching, and Gustavo is the interpreter. He was fantastic. As I moved, he would move all over the stage. I'm moving, he'd move over here. I'd go this way, he'd go that way. And we had just kind of our give and take. I'd pause, and he'd, he'd interpret. I want to share with you God's sincere desire that his people get his word. Our folks were sitting in a place they thought of honor, which would be down front. And surrounding us all around uh, were people. The building was almost full uh, at this point, and there, there are people surrounding them. And I am preaching. And all of a sudden, this has never happened to me before. It is to the very end of the sermon where I have talked about one thing, Psalm 27, 4, this one thing I ask of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That was the thrust of the sermon. But at the end, I'm going to share with him how when Jesus was on the cross, they were his one thing. Hebrews, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's the upward movement of this sermon. I know that. It's the high. It's the message. I want them to know Christ died for them on the cross. So I'm preaching, and Gustavo's interpreting, and we're back and forth. And all of a sudden, with no clue at all, I go into straight Spanish. And you know how I can get on a rant, Right? It was rant time. I am in straight Spanish. I am preaching. I have no clue I'm preaching in Spanish. It's completely in Spanish. And when I finish the rant, I look at Gustavo, and he looks back at me like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and I went, oh, I didn't know that happened. Why would that happen? Because there's a group of people all around us that God so wants to get that word. I had two or three of the other interpreters with us come up to me and they said, your Spanish was impeccable during that time. That was so powerful. That's God's desire to get his word. He wants you to be cut to the heart. Is this why our second value at grace is heart change that leads to life change? Ezekiel says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people. I will be their God. I want you to hear me this morning. I love you, but I want you to hear me. If you're here this morning and there's no change in your life, God is not your God. You're playing games. If you look at this, he will be your God when your heart 
receives his word. And if your heart does not receive his word, he is not your God. You need to look deep. You need to look back. You need to look around. You need to listen. Number three, this is just preach that point. We discover God by repenting and being baptized. To repent is to change one's mind in light of the hatred of one's past sins. It is likely that many in Peter's audience were also just a few weeks before around the cross and yelled, crucify him when Jesus was being crucified. And they had to repent of that. Baptism will do tonight. Uh, what is baptism? It is an outward sign of God's inward work. That's what it is. It's so symbolic. But you've got to understand that while we celebrate baptism and we have shirts that talk about it and we wear these shirts with a, a level of enthusiasm and excitement and this year we, we're, we're baptizing so many people that God is bringing to faith in himself and that's so exciting. While you've got, well, you've got to realize that baptism was quite negative then. Uh, baptism existed before Christianity. I don't know if you realize that. And it existed in the Jewish faith. And it was for Gentile converts. And so Gentiles were any non-Jew who came to believe in Judaism, right? So they're going to convert out of Gentile, uh, uh, believe in whatever God they may have worshipped, right, into Judaism. They're going to follow Judaism. They would be baptized. And that baptism was a very humiliating thing. They went into the water, and the, there was a picture of that baptism of being buried, that old, former, pagan awful. It identified horrendous sin. It said, I've been so far away from God that maybe I've been worshiping Zeus or I've been worshiping other gods or whatever I may have been doing, but I'm converting to Judaism. And so when the early church says, repent and be baptized, they're saying, be baptized not from being a Gentile to being in Judaism. Are you ready for this? This is how outlandish. Be baptized from being in Judaism to following Jesus. That was pretty hefty. Baptism is not to be taken lightly. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, several years ago, we were in Africa, and a young woman was being baptized in Senegal Senegal is 95% Muslim, but you're able to share the gospel. Tonight, you'll see, and then first Wednesdays when we do baptism, that when people come out of the water, we, we applaud, right? We're, we're so happy, and we join them. It's a wonderful time. And so there were just a few of us on that trip that year, I think maybe, maybe eight or nine. And this young woman had stepped down into the waters of an old well, and they, they baptized her, and we were poised to do that, and there was no applause at all. As a matter of fact, she wasn't smiling. It occurred to us that 
her baptism meant she would be ostracized by those people around her. She indeed was leaving a whole, a whole family. They did not agree with what she was doing. And she would pay the price for that. Not with her life. Senegal isn't like that. But socially, relationally. We discover God by repentance, by turning from our sin and being baptized. And finally, we we discover God by receiving gifts. Uh, We like gifts, don't we? Receiving gifts is a, a fun thing. You open up something that something is giving, someone has given you. Um, we like to receive gifts. Uh, there are two of them you receive when you come to Jesus. And so in a few minutes, I'll give you an opportunity, if you don't know Jesus, to come to him this morning. And I'm just going to say in advance, if you do, there are two gifts you'll receive. Um, One deals with your past and the other your future. God gives you the gift of forgiveness for your past. That's your first gift you receive when you come to Jesus. He forgives all of your past. I know what some of you are thinking. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You're right. I I don't. Some of you, I, I do. I would say to you that whatever it is, God forgives you for your past. Peter is promising his hearers that God will forgive them for crucifying his son. Now, while we know metaphorically that all of us, our sins put Jesus on the cross, these people actively engaged in his crucifixion. They screamed, crucify him. They became part of the angry mob. And Jesus is looking at those people, or Peter is looking at those people and saying, if you come to Jesus today, he will forgive you. It will be as if you never stood in that crowd and yelled, crucify him. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. As a matter of fact, when 3,000 that day come to receive the gift, hands open, that's an answer to Jesus' prayer from the cross, isn't it? What was that prayer? Father, Forgive them, for they what? They don't know what they're doing. The father said, okay, okay, son, I will. I will. I've shared this before, but it's worth sharing again if young men is killed through some random act of violence and his father tracks down the guilty person and kills him, we would call that vengeance. If, however, the father calls the police and the murderer is arrested, tried, and convicted, and executed, we call that justice. If at the trial... 
the father pleads for the guilty man's life to be spared and the judge and the jury consent, we call that mercy. Now imagine this. In addition to pleading for the guilty one to be spared, the father actually appeals to the judge to release the offender into his custody and care, the one who killed his son. Miraculously gaining approval, the father takes the young man into his heart and into his home, adopts him, raises him, and loves him as his own son. That would be grace. That's what God does. That's what he did that day. Let me save the crucifiers. That is the gift of forgiveness. It's available to you who are guilt-ridden this morning. It's available to you who are on the edge of despair because of the cycle of sin in your life. Secondly, two gifts. God gives you the gift of forgiveness for your past. He gives you the gift of the Spirit for your future. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit Forgiveness does away with sin's penalty. The Spirit does away with sin's power. Don't miss that. He not only forgives your past sins, he gives you power to say no to future temptations. He gives you the power to say no to sin. John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper, capital H, to be with you how long? Forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You if you come to him today, if you are lost in this place today, if you have walked in our doors and you don't know Christ, I must say to you, we are most thrilled you're here. You are our honored guest today. If you have walked in these doors and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, either you've played church and today that's over, or you have never been part of anything like this. There's a room full of people whose lives have been radically changed by the grace of Jesus Christ who say to you this morning, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Amen, church? We're glad you're here. And there is a Christ who waits to hand you the gift of forgiveness for your past and the spirit for your future. Peter goes on to say, 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You know, Peter had no idea what he was saying then. We know he had no idea because he struggled with it later. Those who were far off, the Gentiles. (laughs) Peter didn't see that coming, right? But the promise is for you because we were a long ways off from this, aren't we? 2,000 plus years. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I want to say something this morning. If you call on God's name, it's because he has called yours first. He has drawn you in. And perhaps he is today. Verses 40 and 41 say this, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The word crooked here is where we get our word scoliosis. It means crooked, bent. I want to say something to you that that may sound a bit harsh. I, I don't mean it that way at all. It may sound hard. I, I don't mean it that way at all. It was a crooked generation who crucified Jesus. And there is a crooked generation that is still crucifying him today. And I do not want to downplay the cost of following him. If you come to him, you will have to save yourself from this crooked generation. Meaning, if your dad decides not to follow you'll have to follow anyway. If your mom decides that this is foolishness, then you will have to be foolish to her. If your son or your daughter looks at you and says to you, why why are you doing this? You'll have to be able to look at them and say, people whose backs are bent with the crookedness of their sin, who don't even know it. No, I'm following. If your football team, if the people on your hall or in your sorority or in your fraternity, if your coworkers, this has to be where that old hymn uh, came up, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. The cross before me, the world behind me. If you follow Jesus, 
There are crooked people in your life who won't understand, who won't like it, who will pull you away, who will pull you down. They do not follow him and they will not understand. This could affect who you date. This could affect who you ultimately marry. This could affect the college you attend. This could affect so many things in your life. A call to follow Christ is a call to leave everything else behind. And some of you do this every single day. Wives, whose husbands don't follow? Husbands, whose wives don't follow? Children whose parents don't follow go on and on and on. In Peter's day, those who said yes to Jesus said yes to a man who died in the electric chair of that day. They followed somebody who had been crucified. And they believed resurrected. And they believed fulfilled the Old Testament. We'll get into that next week. Do you know him this morning? Would you bow your heads?